0: Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. First Samuel chapter fourteen, if you can please stay when you get that. Go down to verse thirty-six. 1 Samuel chapter fourteen, verse thirty-six. Now Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them into the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. And the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God, saying, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You be on one side, and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. The people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord the God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand, so now I must die. Saul answered, God do so, and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, So Jonathan die was accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for his work with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, he did not die. And Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines the Philistines went to their own place. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all of his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them, and he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshui, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the first one, Merab, and the name of the younger, Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahoniam, the daughter of Ahimaaz, And the name of the commander of the army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul. Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now there was fierce war at the Philistines all the days of Saul. When Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he took him for himself. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the chance that we've had to gather together and worship you and have fellowship. And now we turn to your word. And we pray, Father, that our hearts would be fertile grounds and our minds would absorb the things that you would want to speak to us today, that we could start putting in practice into our own lives to make us a little more like your son. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Thank you. We as a species can do some pretty stupid things. I read this week of two teenagers who burst through a front door and ran to the counter demanded that the clerk put all the money in the bag. But she wasn't a clerk. She was a librarian. Anyway, she gave them less than $1 she had collected in fines that day. She then ducked out of the door and called the police. The police, of course, were very confused because they had never heard of two bandits holding up the local library. (laughs) It seems the youth got confused because the bank and the library are just a block apart and they both looked a lot alike. As you can imagine, they were apprehended by the police and they were later booked. Sorry about I couldn't resist. I work hard on stuff like that. In today's scripture, King Saul does something just about as ill-advised as our young bank robbers. And even though his last vow turned out to be a disaster, Saul opens up his mouth once again just to change feet. Look at verse 36 with me. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night, and take spoil among them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. Saul inquired of God, "'Shall I go down after the Philistines, will you give them into the hand of Israel?' But he did not answer him on that day. Surely Saul realized that his delay at Gibeah and the imposing of his foolish vow had already cost the Israelites a great victory. So he tried to make amends. He decided to move his army that very night and be ready to surprise the Philistines the very next morning." And he immediately proposed to mop up what was left of the Philistines. The text reads, And Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them till the morning light. Let us not leave a man among them. He still sounded very different than from Jonathan his son, don't you think? Jonathan had said last week, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. But there's no reference to God by Saul. No expression of faith in God. And the people also were less enthusiastic. They said, do whatever seems good to you. Whatever seems good to you. This was the measure of Saul's conduct right now. This reminds me of the book of Judges. For in that book, we hear this refrain over and over again. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. Again, this is very different from Jonathan's careful trust in God. The army gave no resistance, but Ahijah the priest wisely suggested that they at least pause long enough to seek the will of the Lord. Now, we aren't told what method that Ahijah used to ascertain God's will. Saul's inquiry in all probability was done by the means of the priests Urim and Thummim. It's not entirely clear how this worked, but these objects were kept in the priest's breast and were used for seeking God on important matters. But whatever it was, God didn't answer. Look at that. Someone else had to remind King Saul of God. The priest said, maybe we should pray about this thing. Now, that's a good idea, but why didn't Saul think of it? At last, Saul's thoughts finally turned to the God he had disobeyed in chapter 13 and who he apparently gave no serious thought to in chapter 14. But now, in the 11th hour, when the Philistines were all but cleaned up, he was prompted to ask God whether his plan was a good idea or not. And perhaps we are less than surprised to read, God did not answer him on that day. Now, this, of course, had been previously revealed by the Lord. Remember back in chapter 8, verse 18, Samuel gave a warning about the troubles that a king would bring to his people. Samuel said then in those verses, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, David declared in Psalm 66 that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And it's not that God is being mean to us by saying, I am turning my back on you. Not at all. When our prayers are not answered, it is God's way of saying to us that something in our life isn't right. Perhaps an unconfessed sin or an ungodly attitude. If there is a problem in our communication with God, it should be an indication to us to check our own hearts to see where that problem lies. Just consider the relationship between parents and children If a kid spends the entire day disobeying his parents and then at the end of the day wants to go out for ice cream, that's not going to happen, is it? Why? Because the parents hate the child? No. It's because they love the child and for that reason will refuse to reward bad behavior. So it is with the Lord. Anytime I knowingly and willingly walk in my flesh, I should not be surprised when the heavens seem like brass. That is just my father wanting me to get my life aligned with what I know to be right. Verse 38, please. Saul said, draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. For as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not one of all the people answered him. Saul's capacity to, com- to have a blunder was growing. He assumed that God's silence in his own life was someone else's fault. He knew that something was wrong, but he failed to understand that he himself was the problem. Now, this all goes back to the problem, I think, that Saul had with simple obedience. Back in chapter 13, the prophet Samuel confronted Saul on that fateful day in Gilgal and said to him, you have done foolishly. He said this if you recall because Saul didn't wait on Samuel and offered a sacrifice that he wasn't allowed to make. Now, Samuel's words may sound harsh in our ears. Saul's mistake seem so understandable. A small thing. A matter of timing. A judgment made in desperate circumstances. The enemy was advancing and his own army was deserting. What else was he supposed to do? If you're like me, you may feel a degree of sympathy for Saul. He did what seemed wise, but it was judged to be foolish. He did what seemed to be necessary, but instead he found himself condemned. Our difficulties with the story of Saul should be taken seriously. We may sympathize with Saul because we all know too well how difficult obedience to God can be In our own lives, we may find Samuel's judgment harsh because we are not always persuaded that obedience to God is the wisest course of action. Because if we were so persuaded, we would always obey. Our problem goes back to the couple in the Garden of Eden who believe that lie that disobedience to God is to be desired to make one wise. We are all the children of Adam and Eve. Have you ever noticed how we construct in our own imaginations a caricature that makes wholehearted trust in God just look a little bit naive? We sometimes think that the very godly person knows very little about what we would call real life. We've all heard that saying, they're so heavenly minded, they are of no earthly use. Let me just say that I have never met that person because it's a lie. The people who are truly heavenly-minded will be of great earthly use. I think Jesus proved that point. I think a more accurate saying would be, they are so earthly-minded, they are of no heavenly use. But taking God too seriously, we think, without, of course, saying so, can only lead to gullibility and not wisdom. But the Bible's remarkable teaching is that those who think that, therefore, behave that way and are thus foolish. Psalm 14:1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, this psalm is not speaking just of the theoretical atheist who is, argues philosophically against the existence of God. Now, no doubt such a person is included in this. But the psalm speaks of those who live as if there is no God, who say in their heart, there is no God. To disobey God's commands is the outward expression of, Of our own inward thought process. Such a person, says the Bible, is a fool. And we all know this morning that everyone in here at one time or the other has been such fools. Now, the account of Saul's reign as the first king of Israel is one of the great demonstrations that the Bible sets before us of the foolishness of disobeying God. And we left that account last week after seeing Jonathan doing the very opposite in his heart of saying that there is no God. He really did trust God. And with the Philistines fleeing into the hills and the Israelites in hot pursuit, we can now see the wisdom of Jonathan's faith. But instead, in verse 39, Saul decides it's time for another vow. He says, as the Lord lives, even if it's my own son, he must die. Saul has become a dumb vow factory at this point. And the irony is palpable. We have seen what looks like to be a growing tension between Saul and his son. And we wonder whether Saul may have had some evidence that he knew what Jonathan had previously done. Saul would actually kill his very own son if he stood in the way. Why? I think it's because Saul is jealous of Jonathan. He wants all the glory for himself. And now we're starting to see the true character of Saul. Later on, we, we will see how he will act in direct disobedience and full-throated rebellion to God. Now, the army at this time had remained silent through all of Saul's rantings and ravings. But when Jonathan's life is at stake, they no longer kept quiet They knew that the victory was really Jonathan's. And now Saul was saying, the reason that God didn't answer me was because someone did not obey me and broke my oath. And the army probably knew that Jonathan had tasted the honey. And they knew that Saul was putting up a tremendous front at this time. But they stood in silence up until then because he was the king. So Saul met a second silence, but not one of all the people answered him. Saul was alone here. Not only did he get silence from God, his own people refused to answer him also. The very thing that his oath had been designed to avoid, namely the desertion of all of his people, had happened. Perhaps not literally, but he had certainly lost their hearts. Verse 40, Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Saul said, cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son, and Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I must die. Imagine the scene, Saul and Jonathan standing on one side and all the people on the other. They drew straws to discover who had sinned, and Saul and Jonathan drew the short one. And then they did it again between the two of them, and Jonathan drew the short one. We get the impression that Saul was almost determined that he would demote or destroy his own son, as it's clear that Jonathan didn't agree with his father's practices or his policies. And the scene is a kind of tragic comedy. The same process of casting lots by which Saul had been identified as Israel's chosen king in chapter 10, and the same process that identified the thief Achan in Joshua 7, was now used to identify Jonathan as Israel's problem. When it's all too obvious to all of us that the problems were caused by someone else. Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God could have changed the results of the lot, but I think he wanted to bring the whole thing out into the open and to humiliate King Saul, whose pride has caused a problem to begin with. The people praised Jonathan, not Saul, as a man who had brought the great victory to Israel. And if the Lord had used Jonathan in such a wonderful way... Why should he be executed? Saul came to the irrational conclusion that the reason God didn't answer his prayer was what's called someone ate a little bit of honey. Jonathan's reply brought the gravity of the whole situation into focus. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I must die. Once again, I am impressed with the character of Jonathan. Even though his father's vow was stupid, and even though he didn't know about it, he was still willing to die. And by the way, that's an example that we should all follow this morning. Are we willing to die even when life is unfair? I'm not speaking about physical death, although that is also possible. I'm speaking of dying to ourselves. Are we willing to die to our own desires and aspirations? Are we willing to obey the command of Philippians 2, 3 that says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each one esteem others as better than himself. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I have a little three by five card at home that has these following words that reminds me of this. It says, "When you are forgotten, neglected, or purposely set at naught, and you don't sting or hurt with the oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, your advice disregarded, your opinion ridiculed." and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but take it all in loving, patient silence, that is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any annoyance, when you can stand face-to-face with waste, folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, and endure it as Jesus did, that is dying to self. When you are content with any food, any offering, any raiment, any climate, any society, any solitude, any interruption by the will of God, that is, dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or record your own good works or ish after commendation, when you can truly love to be unknown, that is, dying to self. When you can see your brother prosper and have his needs met, and you can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy nor question God, while your own needs are far greater and you are in desperate circumstances, that is, dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself, and can humbly submit, inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart, That is dying to self. When we hear those words, we may think, who wants to live like that? Why would I always want to put someone else's needs above my own needs? This should be no surprise to you, but the older I get and the longer that I walk with the Lord, the more I am convinced of the words of Christ when he said in Matthew 16, 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the entire world but loses his only soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? All I'm saying is we will never in our lives regret doing things God's way. Verse 44, Saul said, May God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan, and more also. What, Dad, my dying isn't enough of a punishment? But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die was brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far be from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground for his work with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. It would seem that Saul would rather save face than save his own son. It reminds me a little bit of King Herod. Even though he personally didn't want to have John the Baptist beheaded, we read that the cause of his oath and his dinner guests... He fulfilled his vow to have that done. But there's something else I want us to see. Saul's problem is one of disobedience. And while it was unfair, in the strictest technical sense of the word, Jonathan was also disobedient, at least in Saul's eyes. But why does Saul seem so angry and out of control about this punishment? I would submit to you that it's because we despise in others the very thing that we ourselves are guilty of. I've learned over the years that any time I feel an unrealistic anger over someone else's sin, it's time to check my own life to see if that sin resides in me in some form or the other. A great example of this is King David and his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. The prophet Nathan was sent to him with a story about a man who had taken his neighbor's only lamb and killed it for a feast. What did David say? The Bible says, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Look, what that man did by taking the lamb was certainly wrong, but I don't think he deserved the electric chair for it. The reason why David was so harsh was because he was guilty of the exact same thing, only on a much larger scale. But now the people make a vow and say, no way are we about to let this happen. They trump Saul's vow with their vows. kind of like, we'll see your vow and raise you one. But does this whole story sound a little bit familiar to you with the gospel? Here is the only begotten son of the Father, who should not die because he is righteous. And yet a law says that he must die. The son says, not my will, but yours be done. He is delivered up to death, but is rescued by a higher law that says that he is innocent. And will be raised from the dead because death cannot hold him. Something to think about. Look at verse 46 with me. And Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines. The Philistines went to their own place. Now when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all the enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. The account concludes with noting that Saul failed to deal with the real problem that had been threatening him and the people all along. And Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, it says, and the Philistines went back to their own place. Now, the monarchy of Saul existed between chapters 13 and 14. It's going to effectively end in chapter 15. But verses 47 and 48 sort of encapsulate his reign. And much more happened, of course, in the reign of King Saul than is recorded in this book. But it makes clear that Saul was a failure as Israel's king, and he certainly was, but it wasn't because of a lack of military skill. His failure, as we found out in chapter 13, and as we have seen played out in chapter 14, and we'll see played out in chapter 15, lay in his not trusting and obeying the Lord. But when you look at all the enemies that he did subdue, it might surprise us considering how that he had begun. Now, is Saul a flawed man? Well, yes, he is. And yet his monarchy brought great blessings to the kingdom of Israel for the sole reason that God is good to his people. Verse 49 Now, the sons of Saul were Jonathan and Ishvi and Malkeshua, I think. And the names of his two daughters were these the name of the firstborn, Murab. the name of the younger, Michael. In the name of Saul's wife was Ahonium, the daughter of Ahamaz. And the name of the captain of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any mighty man or any valiant man, he attached him to a staff. I think it's interesting that Jonathan's name means gift from God, while the name Ishvi means gift just like me this is a sign i think that saul is regressing at the birth of his first son he acknowledged god but later he simply boasts in himself and although we have much more to hear about saul in particular there is a very important episode we're going to see in chapter 15 but there is a sense in which the essential story has already been told And as though to signal this, the narrative provides at this point a summary of Saul's reign. But effectively, Saul's reign is really over. And finally, his legacy is summed up. Now, the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul. He never did deal with the original problem. And indeed, it will be fighting the Philistines that Saul will lose his life. We read in verse 52 that the young strongmen were drafted into Saul's army just as Samuel had prophesied. That's how the draft went in those days. Hey, look at that guy. You're in the army. We'll see in the next chapter that Saul is not obeying God at all any longer. He is following his own devices, and finally the Spirit of God will quit speaking to him altogether. God will no longer give him any leading, and Saul is going to turn to the demonic world. And we're finally going to see that incident where Saul actually consults the witch of Endor. Saul is one of the great tragic figures of world history and of world literature. We sense his tragedy because we know his weaknesses very well indeed ourselves. Saul failed as I have failed and as you have failed. We know what it is to forget God, to not really trust in God, and to disobey God. So I think it's appropriate for us to see in Saul's story this lesson for our own lives this morning. Let us not be like Saul. Let us not forget God. Let us trust him and let us obey him. But the deeper lesson for us to learn from Saul is that his failure should point to us, the king, who was everything that Saul failed to be. If we have seen Saul's foolishness, then let that point us to the wisdom of the one who said, Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Let us all also be wise builders, I pray. And Father, that is our desire in this world that is so rocky, Father, and moving all the time and all the different voices that are coming into our heads. We know that there is only one foundation that we can build upon. We know that there is only one voice that we should follow. I pray you would just build that into us today, Father. Give us the desire even more to want to know your voice and follow your ways. I ask in Christ's name. Amen.